Now, I'd like you to stand, please, and take your hymnal first. Stand, please, and take your hymnal and turn to hymn number 133. And before we sing that in just a moment, I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. This was written by Charles Wesley, the music by Felix Mendelssohn. One of the great hymns written by a great hymn writer. <clears throat> These words are magnificent. I love words. And I love to read people who know how to put them together in a, in a poetic and meaningful way. And Charles Wesley is so gifted by God to do it. Listen to this second verse. I'm going to read it. Christ, my highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. An earlier and probably more reliable copy of these words changes one word from what we have in our hymnal. For we say, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. An earlier version seems to indicate the word rap in flesh, <clears throat> wrapped in flesh, as you wrap your Christmas gifts, think of it, God wrapped his great gift in the flesh of his son. Now, hear the word. John, the first chapter, beginning with verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word wrapped in flesh. Let's think about it. In 1966, I believe it was 1966 or 67, we were putting up our Christmas decorations and the manger scene and decorating the tree. You know all of the stuff you did. And uh, Mike was then six, seven, up nine years old, I, I guess. Nine, maybe ten. Anyway, he was getting the manger scene together getting it out of the box and all, putting it up. And he walked into me and he said, 
Guess who's missing? I said, who? He said, the baby Jesus. Can't find him in all the paper. And then he made a statement that stuck. He said, you know, there's no point in putting it up if we can't find him. We finally went through the paper, and he was there. Baby Jesus on the manger. But he can get lost in all the paper. And really, there's no point in putting up with all of this if we can't find him. No point in all of the gifts and the parties and the pageants. If through all of that, we miss him. Read about a little kid who was putting the manger scene up and he found the little figure of baby Jesus on the manger. You know, it's all one little piece in some manger scenes. Little kid said, there's Jesus in his car seat. <laughs> I thought, isn't that marvelous? The reality of this thing, it comes through when you think about it. Jesus in his car seat, and his mother laid him in a car seat. The reality of the story, the point of all of this, the point of this message this morning, that I pray God will help me communicate to myself and to you and to all of us, is the reality of that event. It didn't take place in an air-conditioned building as a pageant with everybody with clean fingernails and pressed clothes and full stomachs and nice automobiles. It took place in a place and at a time, a difficult place and a difficult time. A lot of poverty, an occupying army, living in the land, a man in faraway Rome issues an edict and everybody has to start going somewhere else. The roads are crowded, the facilities overloaded. A little baby was born. A little baby. Didn't get a whole lot of notice. Have you ever seen that uh, painting of a young couple contemplating, staring at, at a little newborn baby that was theirs? Obviously, it was their first child. And they're both sitting there looking into the face of this little baby. And the title of the painting is A Bundle of Contradictions. That is a perfect description of a baby, a bundle of contradictions. That little baby is speechless, 
but eloquent. Helpless, but powerful. Changes everything about your life. Rearranges the furniture. Rearranges your sleeping habits, your eating habits, your going out at night habits. And he doesn't say a word. He's little but lordly. He lords it over you. He controls the place. And sometimes frustrating, but lovable. It's true of Jesus. Some of us, some of us need to work on our capacity for dealing with paradox and ambiguity and poetry. We can come with such a scientific approach to everything that we miss the meaning of it. That can happen in Bible study. You can do a lot of Bible study and never know the meaning of it if you don't understand something about paradox and poetry. Well, this story is full of that. It's a mixture, a marvelous mixture. It is a mixture of the mundane and the magnificent. We call it theologically the incarnation. God wrapped in human flesh. God veiled in human flesh, as we sang it a moment ago. The Incarnation. What does that mean? That means there's a mixture here of things going on. Let all of them speak to us. He was born as a baby. The gospel is as human as that. Born as a baby. The gospel is as human as is that. But he was announced by angels. The gospel is as divine as that. And watch this mixture of humanity and divinity run throughout his life and throughout his ministry and throughout his work. And watch for that same combination to be at work in your life and in mine. This miraculous, mystical mixture of the mundane and the magnificent. The human and the divine. He is at home in both worlds. He's not just cloistered in ecclesiastical robes in some sanctuary. He gets wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid on a feed box in a stable. The human and the divine mixture. When he was born, the angels sang, but not long after 
the babies cried, and their mothers and fathers even more. The angels sang, but Herod didn't join the chorus. Here an evil man perpetrated evil upon innocent little children, and he was not the first and unfortunately nor the last despotic individual who has perpetrated harm and hurt upon innocent people. Those little babies killed, slaughtered, because they happened to accompany Jesus to earth. Let me ask you just a little, little uh, roadside stop here for just a moment to ask you a question to turn over in your mind later on. What happened to those little babies, two years of age and under, that were killed because Jesus was born? We're dealing with some theological issues here, not just some historical events. What happened to those little babies? Did they go to heaven or hell? If they were not circumcised, were they lost? Or to translate it into vernacular that you and I would better understand, were they lost because some ecclesiastical figure didn't put a little water on their head? Come on, what kind of God are we talking about here? What have we done to the reputation of God? What happened to those little babies who escorted the Son of God to the earth? The mixture, good and evil, light and darkness, and whenever the light comes, the darkness contends with it, confronts it, and tries to extinguish it. The light shines in the darkness, but it cannot hold it back. But the beat goes on, and the battle goes on, and the confrontation goes on. We're talking about reality here. Not just palaces, but mangers. Look at him in his ministry. So thirsty... So thirsty, he asked a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times and was now living with a man she was not married to, ask her for a drink. And that was just contrary to all custom, to religion and everything else for a Jewish man to address a Samaritan woman. And he did it at hot noonday at Jacob's well at Sychar. And here the Son of God was thirsty. That's how human he was. And when she talked about the emptiness inside of her, he said, I will give you water of life where you will never thirst again. That's how divine. You see the mixture there at the well? A thirsty Savior giving the water of life to a discarded woman. The humanity of it, the divinity of it. So fatigued you went to sleep in the storm in the back of the boat. God got tired, exhausted. 
how human it is. And the disciples awakened him and said, don't you care about us? We're about to die. And he got up and he spoke peace to the storm. That's how divine it is. At Bethany, with Mary and Martha, he stood by the grave of Lazarus and wept. It's as human as that. And then a few moments later, he cried, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth. It's as divine as that. Look at him on his cross. One moment crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's as human as that. And a little later crying, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. It's as divine as that. Even after his resurrection, he walks through the door without opening it. The resurrected, triumphant Son of God walks into the room. And he looks at the disciples and they're staring at him in astonishment. And he said, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him some broiled fish. And he sat there and ate the fish. It's as human as that, even after the resurrection. Those nail-pierced hands, he eats the broiled fish. It's as human as pierced hands at a dinner table. And then he says, come with me. And they walk out to the Mount of Olives, and he raises those same hands, and he blesses them, and he says, my peace I give you. Now go into all the world and tell the world all about it. It's as divine as that. And if in your world right now you're thirsty or lonely or frustrated or fatigued or feel forsaken or rejected, he is right there with you. It's as human as you and your life. And it is as divine as the triumphant power of God. It's real, real stuff for real people. Jesus in a car seat. Your seat. Mine. The early church, the early church saw this and felt this.
Embedded over there in Paul's letter to Timothy is a fragment of what most biblical scholars have come to believe is a fragment of the earliest record of any hymn we have in the world. You want to know what the early Christians sang, sang and how they sang and the way they sang, you find this little fragment here that Paul quotes to Timothy. Uh, let me back up and we'll give a little historical verification in addition to what the Bible says. Uh, Trajan was the Roman emperor in about 103 A.D., and he'd heard about the Christians, and so he sent his friend, Pliny the Younger, which was a philosopher that some of you may be familiar with, who are interested in or read philosophy. Pliny the Younger was a friend of Trajan. Trajan wanted Pliny to go investigate this group of Christians. He'd heard about them. And so he carried on investigation, came back and reported to the emperor. He said, uh, they are fine people. So they have very high morals. He said, they have some strange habits, however. They like to get together early in the mornings and they share, they talk, and they sing. He said, of course, there are some things about them. They don't agree with some of the Roman customs, but we'll... That doesn't seem to be too serious at this point. It got serious later on, so serious that many of them got killed. But at this point, reporting to Trajan, Pliny said, they just have a strange habit of getting together, and they divide up, and one group sings on one side, and another group sings on the other. We call that antiphonal singing today. We think it was invented somewhere in early America. It, it happened in the catacombs of Rome. And Paul gives us here what is in all likelihood an example of that singing. Now, we don't have the same rhyme because it probably got lost in the translation. But if you have your Bibles, turn to, it's easy to remember, 1 Timothy 3.16. I want to back up and read 3.15 because it certainly sets the stage for the 16th verse. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, In any case, I am delayed. I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, how you ought to carry on in church. Which is the church, he says. Now listen to this. He's talking about the church. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we are to be. And we are the only institution called into existence by God himself to be just that. the pillar and the support of the truth. Many other fine institutions and organizations, many of them committed to doing good things, but only one organization, institution, fellowship created by God was the church, and he said it is the household of faith, and it has been committed unto them, the church of the living God, to be the pillar and the support of the truth. And by common confession, here they're coming to church now, by common confession, this was what they would sing in all likelihood as a group. Great is the mystery of godliness. Mysterion, mystery, paradox, human, divine, joined together in incarnate living. Great is the mystery beyond our logical comprehension. Great is the mystery of God. Mystery of godliness. 
first group over here would sing, God who was revealed in the flesh. God who was revealed in the flesh. This side. He was vindicated in the spirit. Human. Divine. Group one would then sing, Beheld by angels, divine. Second group, he proclaimed, he was proclaimed among the nations, the Gentiles, the heathens, the outsiders, angels, and sinners. The divine and the human. Group one, believed on in the world, believed on in the world, human, taken up into glory, the divine, human, divine, mystery, mixture, incarnation, God. In flesh. Now, my friends, you and I would never have heard of Bethlehem. We would never have known about Mary and Joseph, the wise men and the shepherds. We would never have known about the miracles and the teachings. We wouldn't have known any of that. We might have gotten a hint about the crucifixion because many were crucified. But Christianity or Jesus Christ would have been a mere footnote in some obscure Jewish history book had it not been for the resurrection. We would never have heard about Bethlehem had it not been for the resurrection. Which is why Martin Luther said the Bible must be read forward, but it's understood backwards. You don't begin to understand it until you come from a resurrection experience in your heart and in your life. And until that happens, there is no point in anything if you don't know him. There is no point in any of this if you don't know him. If you don't find him in the manger of your own heart and on the cross of your own life and as the resurrected power of God in your own living, no point to it all. Life becomes, as Shakespeare said, truly a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Paul said, if it's not true, we are of all men most miserable. Meet him and let him meet you and you'll know the meaning of it all you will find life 
divine life in the midst of the mundane and the thirsty and the tired and the lonely and the hurting and the rejected. He will be right there. God wrapped in flesh. Great is the mystery of godliness. Accept him, trust him, follow him, unite with his church, the pillar of the truth. Come be a part of his fellowship. We believe in the resurrected Son of God who's come to give meaning to all the manger experiences of life.